I'm Pastor Scott, lead pastor of the river. We hope that you are blessed by what you hear on, on this podcast. We hope that God's word continues to have power in your life. And we pray that uh, God makes himself known. Thanks for checking us out and uh, enjoy the service. We're finishing up this uh, little section of the series, not the whole series, but the little section on the prodigal son story. Um, if you remember, we've, we're walking through forgiveness, the idea of forgiving with arms wide open. And um, in Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11, we have a very familiar parable, the, the parable of the prodigal. We've spent two weeks on two different characters already. The first, the prodigal, the younger son. Uh, last week we spent on the father. This week we're spending on the other prodigal, the older brother, the older son, and um, how his behavior and his presence in the story teaches us something about forgiveness. And um, there's some difficult stuff here, folks. There's some challenging things. Unforgiveness or the ability or inability to forgive is one of the most difficult things that I think we as Christians face. And so my guess is that God is doing some work even now to prepare some of you for some difficult, difficult things. So let's pray to that end that what we do gives him praise and does the work that he desires of his word. We pray, Father, that you move through your word, move through um, uh, what I have to say and make me disappear so that you might appear here and speak to us through your word. Truly, Lord, may you be glorified in how you transform and meet us in the difficulty of unforgiveness. It's a difficult space, a difficult place. There's some hard, hard things here. And uh, I pray, Father, that you equip us to the end um, of being able to move towards them through the power of your spirit. You are the only one who can do this. We pray that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. From Luke chapter 15, beginning at verse 11. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need, so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach, pardon me, lost myself here, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to a sense senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. 
He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. But you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What are forgivable sins for you? If a person cuts you off on the freeway, is that a forgivable sin? For me, it's not, by the way. <laughs> is it forgivable if your child sasses you back? Can you forgive that one? My guess is most of you can. At least you'd better because you know your kid does it. What about your, your spouse? What about if they tell you they're going to do something and they don't? Forget that one? Can we work that one through? Yeah, I think most of us can. Can we forgive someone for being an Ohio State fan? No, we cannot do that. That's not allowed. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, can we forgive if somebody hurts one of our children? Starting to get a little harder. Can you forgive infidelity of a spouse? Can you forgive infidelity of a parent? Could you forgive a person who has aborted their child, someone that you know? Could you forgive a group of men who decided to get on a series of airplanes and fly several of them into large buildings and one into a field in Pennsylvania? Forgiveness is hard, especially when we're confronted with those sorts of scenarios. The first, the little itty-bitty things, the child being disobedient, a, 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 a spouse who maybe doesn't do what we want them to, those things can be addressed and approached and forgiven fairly easily. But there's certainly other things which are more difficult, certainly other things which become 10 times more challenging to walk through, so much so that we think to ourselves, how can someone forgive that? How can you forgive the child abuser? How can you forgive the person who is a lifetime racist? How can you forgive this, that? And we can categorize all of those. And in our story from Luke chapter 15, the other son, the older son, the other prodigal, in many ways represents that unforgiveness. What is it 
mean to live in unforgiveness? And if we look at the situation with the older brother, we could certainly empathize with him. In fact, if you had to put yourself into one of the character positions in the story, the younger son, the father, or the older son, how many of you think you could empathize and be with the older son? That's who I am a little bit. Because it makes sense, right? I mean, this guy has been wronged. His younger brother messed up his life in some ways. He messed up his life in taking part of the inheritance and therefore leaving the business a lot less well off, this business that was supposed to be partly his. He, he left and left all the work to him. He was the one who had now to take responsibility for the fields and the orchards or the livestock, all the different things that were a part of his family's business. His, son, his brother's off partying in another country doing crazy, crazy things. And certainly he's been violated because he wished death upon his father. You can almost hear the words that he might say, this isn't fair. Dad, what in the world are you doing? You're meeting him at the front gate of the house. And he did these things to you. He stole money from you. He wished you were dead. He got drunk. He squandered all of his stuff on hookers and alcohol and parties with ridiculous, crazy, foolish people. He's throwing parties all the time, and now he comes home, and you're throwing him one. It's like there's nothing that ever happened. Like, welcome home, son. Thanks for messing up our entire house. Now he gets the fattened calf and a robe on and a ring on his. Dad, are you nuts? That isn't the way it's. You're not going to sit and talk with him at the front gate and say, what were you thinking? You're not going to stand with him up there or maybe better yet, take him behind the barn and give him a what for just because you know he needs one? None of that is going to happen. I put myself in the position of this person really easily because I see things like that in my life and in the lives of others. And there's times when you just want to take a sledgehammer or at least a two by four. And that person, oh yeah, we're going to have us a talk. That's not what happens. What happens is completely the opposite. We don't hear of any consequence. We don't hear of any confrontation. So it's understandable that the older brother doesn't want to go in. It makes sense that he certainly wants nothing to do with this party. You can imagine him saying almost, you know what, we'll figure this out, me and my brother of ours. We'll figure this out. Maybe we'll have to draw some lines in the fence. He gets the family room, but I get the kitchen. He gets the dining room, but I get the back patio. And he's going to do this farming. I'm going to do the livestock. That's the way it's going to have to be because I don't want to have to deal with him. 
You can almost imagine that there's that sort of behavior going on in the heart and the mind of the older brother because he wants justice. He wants his brother to pay for what he's done. And until he pays, he's not going to be satisfied. Do you see the problem with that? He is now dependent upon justice for another governing his attitude and his life. And add to that the fact that he feels unappreciated by his father and he's in this place of unhappiness. Now, I want you to think with me here. He's basically, he's governed by the idea that his brother has to change, otherwise he won't be happy. Someone else has to change for him to be happy. Does anybody else see a problem with this? How many people have you changed in your life? How many people have you been effective at transforming in the way that you want to? Jill, I know you've been unsuccessful thus far. If we're married, we know it's impossible, yeah? If we're parents, we know it's impossible. If we're children, we know it's impossible. If we're human, if we're alive, we know it's impossible to really fundamentally change another person. That is up to God and that person, not us. And unforgiveness in the life of the brother puts him in a place of being dependent upon this person changing for him to flourish, have happiness and life. And so he's in trouble because he's going to be in that place for a really long time. It's an unhappiness recipe. I'm just finished, uh, I'm in a book club and we just finished a book, a very challenging, challenging book called Unbroken. It's the story of Louis Zamperini. Has anyone read it? Maybe you're familiar with the story of Louis Zamperini. If you aren't, you should. It's an incredible, incredible story and he is a native son of Southern California. He just died over a month ago, just died in his 90s. Louis Zamperini came to fame in the 30s in Southern California because he was a track and field star. And he, at that time, was training for the Olympics. He was a student at USC. He actually gained quite a bit of national and international recognition. It was thought that Louis Zamperini might be perhaps the first person ever who could break the four-minute mile, which at that point was the ultimate. And really, the trajectory was such, it was very possible for it to happen. And he was at the 36 Olympic Games 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin, Germany. And he did well. He didn't medal, but he did well. He was hoping to be able to do even better in the 1940 Olympic Games. But if you know your history, you know there's a problem. Because 1939 comes around. 1939, World War II breaks out. And suddenly the 1940 Olympic Games is canceled. So Lewis's dreams of competing in the Olympics go away, if only for a little while. 
So now he's got to figure out what's next. Well, what's next is obviously the war. He ends up being a part of the Army Air Corps in the United States, and he becomes part of a bomber squadron, B-24 bombers, long-distance bombers. And he's in the Pacific Theater of Conflict. And there's a bomber that goes down in the ocean. His bomber goes out to look for it. And unfortunately, his bomber crashes. And he is one of three people to survive the crash. Problem is, nobody knows where they are. They're in two life rafts. The life rafts are about this long each and about that wide, just big enough for one person in them. He and three others, he and two others, one who finally does survive, survive in life rafts adrift in the Pacific Ocean for over 45 days. It was a record at that time for somebody adrift at sea. No food, no water. They basically actually end up grabbing birds and just eating them. No cooking, just eat them. He ended up having to punch a shark in the face, which would be really cool to say you did, but for him it was saving his life. But that's not the worst of it. The worst of it is that when he was quote-unquote rescued, he was rescued by the Japanese. Ended up to move towards a two and a half year incarceration as a prisoner of war in different Japanese jails. Now he was special because he was a celebrity, so they singled him out. They singled him out, they hid him from the Red Cross. Nobody that he knew that he was alive for well over a year, almost a year and a half. Because they were hiding him. They didn't let anyone know. And unfortunately, somebody took notice of him. Somebody was a guard named the bird. And as he met this bird in one of his jails, the bird decided that he was going to break Louis Samperini. So he would regularly walk up to him and with no warning whatsoever, punch him directly in the face. It would get people with truncheons and with clubs and with rifle butts, other soldiers, other guards to beat him. In one of the worst stories of the book, he and three other officers are lined up as a consequence for some stuff that has gone on. And the bird calls a hundred people who are prisoners, so these are fellow Americans and allied soldiers, to stand in a line and one by one they will approach each of these four officers and when they get up to them, they will as hard as they can punch them directly in the face, each in turn. One hundred people. And if they don't hit them hard enough, you got to try it again until you get it right. Otherwise you'll be beaten. They kept track, one person did, over 220 blows directly to the face. I want you to think about that. Think about how much anger you would have towards somebody who decided to do this to you. Louis Samperini was angry. He wanted him dead. In fact, there were plans to kill the bird. But the war ended right about that time. And the camp where he was at was eventually liberated And he ended up eventually back in the United States, having weathered two and a half years of the worst possible life you can imagine. But it's not over. Because he still has to fall asleep at night. And when he closes his eyes in the middle of the night, who does he see? The bird. The bird in his dreams whips him. 
The bird in his dreams beats him. The bird in his dreams tortures him the way he did before. And Lewis has had enough. He's consumed by this. He's becoming an alcoholic. He's estranged from his wife. He's estranged estranged from his daughter. He is ready for this to be over. And there's only one way for this to be over. He has to find and kill the bird. So he makes plans to do so. He is completely consumed with what another has done that his whole life revolves around it. And many of us are in that same place where another has done something to us, something has happened in our lives, and we are consumed by it so much that it governs a lot of what we do. I would say this, that probably I would say 40% of the marriages maybe that I spend time with that are on the brink of divorce are right there because of unforgiveness number of shattered and broken relationships between siblings or children and their parents, almost all of those are from unforgiveness. We all have the stories, the unfair stories of wrongs that have been committed to us that deeply impact us. And it gets complicated, especially when the perpetrator who's done the wrong either doesn't ask for or want or is incapable of asking for forgiveness. Perhaps they've died. I've met many a person who's stuck because they can no longer work out reconciliation and forgiveness with a dead parent. And there's no hope, they think. How can I do this if I can't see them face to face and try to work this out? And the problem that comes is that this pain can consume for years and years and years. And it makes it impossible for people to get to flourish. You get stuck. I see it all the time. Unfortunately, I've experienced it even in my own life. That there are things, situations, people that are hard to forgive because that wasn't fair. I didn't deserve that. Why did they do that to me? Who does that? And we become in that place and live in that place where our lives revolve around another person's behavior so much so that we can't live into any other part of life. We're stuck until that gets fixed. When this gets fixed, it'll be better. But until then, I'm angry, frustrated. I'm enraged even. And when you are in those places, what happens? You try to numb the pain. Try to avoid it. Try to forget it. Do anything. Alcoholism is oftentimes completely connected to unforgiveness. Drug use, same thing. Gambling, pornography. You name your addiction. It is oftentimes directly connected to unforgiveness. Why? Because that hurts so much. 
we want to forget and we're willing to do whatever we can in order to stop that pain. So how do we get out of it? And I'll tell you, this is hard stuff. This is some of the hardest stuff of walking with Jesus, folks. How do we get past this? And I would say there's a whole lot of people who are still in that place of unforgiveness right now, in this room, right now. How do you get out of that place? Well, as we look back at our text, there's a key phrase in verse 31 that if you're going too fast, you miss it. If you've got your Bibles open, look at it and underline it if it's your Bible. Actually, if it's the church's Bible, underline it because it's worth the next person knowing too. Father says something to his son that changes how his son can engage in this whole situation with his younger brother. He says this, My son, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. And we hear that, and it maybe it doesn't click. How many of you just sort of skim over that and skip it? You don't think that's a pivotal part of the parable of the prodigal son. I'm telling you, it's absolutely fundamentally key. If we see what the father is saying to his son, what God is saying to his people and saying, everything is he, that you have, everything that I have is yours, then we're starting to get to the fundamentals of what forgiveness is all about. He is saying, the father is saying to his son, you think your whole thing over here, your whole identity is dependent upon your relationship with the injustice of your younger brother. You, you won't be happy. You won't live into any other life until this gets addressed. But here's the thing. My relationship with you is your fundamental identity. I'm your dad. You're my son. And as you're my son, everything that I have is yours. And that should impact how you see anything and everything around you in your life. And he's not talking about money here. Because if he were talking about money, it would be a different story. But it's not about money. He's saying, guess what? In me, you have relationship. In me, you have acceptance. In me, you have love. In me, you have hope. Everything that I have, everything that I am, everything that we are as father and son, all all this is yours. And if you live in that place being governed by this identity of needing your brother to reconcile, then you're missing out on what I'm offering you. You're going to be stuck in that. Over here, there's life. Over here, over here, you're, you're wallowing. Over here, it's pain. Over here is suffering. Over here, what I give to you is everything that you can have, everything that you ever need, everything you can ever want. But you just have to walk into this. You wonder, my son, why I met your brother at the front gate? Because I don't want to be in that place. I don't want to be governed by who he is and what he's done. I need to be governed by something else. I need to release that. It's not mine. It's his. He'll deal with it or he won't. 
It's his thing. I'm going to live into this life that God is, that I have. I'm going to live into this life and not worry about that. See, the problem that the son faces is he's got to step out of that life to move into this one. And that's not easy. Because it means that you need to let go of justice. It means you need to let go of the consequence that the person who has done something to you should bear. It means that you're not going to be consumed by that rage and that anger and you're going to move over to this place where there's life and joy and abundance. But remember, over here you're governed by another person changing. Over here you're governed only by one person changing and that's you. It's about your attitude, how you understand who you really are. In being united with Christ by grace, we too are children of God with all the rights and privileges that go along with it. God says to us, everything I have is yours. He says the same thing that he says to the son. He says, here's your identity. Your primary identity is as one of my children. Your primary identity is as one of the people that I have called to be in relationship with me through the grace of Jesus Christ. Your primary identity is one as part of the community of faith that I have gathered together to give glory to me. Part, your identity is based upon everything that I have given you, not everything that someone else has done to you. Live into this identity because in here I do offer you life and hope. But when we live in unforgiveness, we're forfeiting that identity. It's where people get stuck. It's where people lose joy and life and hope. It's where people end up in my office or in offices of other professionals sitting down trying to figure out how to make things better because it hurts so much. How do I stop hurting? We stop hurting by living into who God has made us and not just what somebody has done to us. Now it can still hurt, it will still hurt and that's hard, certainly I know. I'm not trying to say anything trite here. This is not a simple journey. I'm not even talking about something that can take you weeks or even months. This might take years and in some cases it certainly does. But if you can somehow or other come to the place of in the strength of Jesus Christ and by the grace that he's given you and the spirit that works within you, if you can make this statement, if you can do that, you are in a beautiful place, a place of forgiveness. And here's that statement. I am willing to live with the consequences of another's actions in my life. I'm willing to do that because I can't change it. If abuse has been done to you, that's horrible, and I hate it, and I wish it would have never happened, but here's the problem. Can you go back and change it? You can't. 
There has to be that place we can come to say we are willing to live with the consequences because we don't have a choice. We have to be willing to live with the consequences of another's actions and then say, but none of that changes that I'm always a child of God. No matter what happens over in that place, no matter what someone has said, done, how they've hurt me, I am a child of God. And if I'm a child of God, what does he say to the son? Everything I have is yours. Life, abundance, hope, purpose. Everything that you could ever hope for or imagine is in the place of identity. And you know what? What somebody has done to you, no matter how horrible it might have been, ever, never changes that. Leave that be. Release it. Forgive it. Through the power of the Spirit, forgive it and move it into being God's child. When you experience the freedom that the Spirit offers you in forgiveness, you want others to know it too. If you've ever been in that place, and I've had the privilege of being in that place, where you suddenly realize and understand true forgiveness, it's like a light goes on. It's like the angels sing. It's like a breath of fresh air. It's about cool glass of water on a hot, hot day. It's that sort of thing, and you want other people to hear about it. The story of Louis Zamberini, I I won't say this. I won't say I liked the book. I'm glad I read the book. I didn't like the book simply because it's a hard book to read. There's a lot of challenging, challenging stuff in there. Still encourage you to do that, to read it, in part because you get to the end. See, here's the end of the story. Louis is an alcoholic. He's estranged from his wife, estranged from his daughter. He's making plans to go over to Japan and take a ship to Japan and go kill the bird. Find him and kill him. That's his goal. But then somebody comes to town and was there anybody here in this room who in the late part of the 40s went down to downtown Los Angeles and saw a person who set up a tent and preached the gospel for several weeks, months. His name was Billy Graham. Anyone go to those? You did. Greta, Claire, you guys were there. So was Louis Samperini. His wife had gone one night because Billy had set up a tent with about a few thousand chairs and thought he was going to be there for maybe a week. But then something happened and the gospel and the power of God transformed a community and he ended up to be there for, I think, several months. Preaching as much as he possibly could. And it became almost uh, some sort of spectacle. Everyone would come and hear Billy Graham. Have you heard Billy? Have you gone down to the tent? Have you gone down there and heard all the things that are going on? Lewis's wife went and she said, Lewis, you need to go. He didn't want to go. He wanted to get drunk. He didn't want to go. He wanted to be angry. But he went. And the first night he sat and he was angry, very angry. He was frustrated by what he heard and he didn't think it was true and he thought it was ridiculous and he sat there frustrated by the whole thing so that when the time Billy Graham said, what did he say? He says, every eye closed, every head bowed. Lewis stood up, but he didn't stand up to go to the front. He grabbed his wife's hand and they booked it out of there because he wanted nothing to do with it. 
But his wife said, come back again. We're going to go another night. And he did. And the second night he was angry again. And he was confused again. And he was frustrated again. And when the time came for him to... When every eye closed, every knee, you know, bowed, every hand, whatever, that time, he said, I'm getting out of here. Stood up, grabbed his wife's hands, they were leaving. And he got to the aisle. Something got a hold of him. God got a hold of him. And suddenly, life was different. He understood anything and everything in a whole new way. Went back to his house, found all the alcohol in the house, poured it out. Went to bed. And you know what he dreamed of that night? Nothing. The bird wasn't there anymore. Because God had come in Christ. And allowed him to let go through forgiveness of all that pain, all that desire for justice, and all of that anger. And now there was life. Here's the interesting part. Louis Samperini actually ended up opening up a camp for teenagers in the hills above L.A. And he wasn't pounded into the palm of your hand gospel preaching, but he was looking for kids who, was like, who were like he was. He could sit and talk and build a relationship with, and if faith came up, he knew what he could tell them. And he began to live a life of joy and abundance. At 70 years old, he started skateboarding. He jumped out of an airplane to parachute. He jumped out of an airplane on purpose to parachute. This guy, his children had a wonderful relationship. He impacted literally thousands and thousands of kids over the years. And at his funeral, his funeral made national news, by the way, if you were watching at the time, because of the influence of one man who had an incredible, incredible story. Remember, 50 days at sea in a life raft. Two and a half years in a torturous jail situation, tortured by the worst of the worst prison guards. And he forgave through the work of Christ and knew many, many years of life and hope and abundance. That's what the identity that we have in Christ, that's what it offers. If we will but receive it. Step out of the old, step into the new. Let me pray for you, pray for us to that end. We pray in Christ, Father, that you equip us to live into this identity that we know in Christ. Live into the grace. Live out of the unforgiveness, the places where we get stuck because we're dependent upon the behavior of another, whether or not they will be willing to ask for forgiveness, whether or not justice can be done. Father, help us, equip us to move out of that place and space which hurts, which consumes, which 
makes us stuck, that we can move out of the, that place through your spirit and move into life and hope. Father, we know and understand that uh, this is hard work, and it's something that you and you alone can do in us. We ask that you would be willing to do it in us and use, um, use this community. May we equip and encourage each other as we walk this through. We pray these things all in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope that you are blessed by what you hear. Maybe you're checking out our website more and seeing things that you uh, are wondering whether or not you might want to participate in them. Feel free. Contact us in the office. Give us a call. Send us an email. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Love to answer any questions that you have. Thanks for checking us out.